everyone. Welcome back to Central American Voices. This is Susan Garcia. Hola, bienvenidos a Voces Centroamericanas. Mi nombre es Alejandra Quiroz. Le agradecemos por sintonizarnos una vez más. On today's episode, we talk with Jocelyn Gregorio Alarcón, who just graduated from Lehigh University with a degree in Earth and Environmental Sciences. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, to be with us today. We really appreciate it. So first of all, would you like to start with telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I recently graduated with my, as you mentioned, with my degree in Earth and Environmental Sciences from Lehigh University. Um, originally, my family is from Guatemala, and I, but I grew up in um, San Jose, California, and um, I decided to study um, earth and environmental science because I wanted to learn more about natural resources in Central America, given that I feel like a lot of the conflicts and migration from the region have a root cause in environmental problems. So when I got to college, um, I also minored in Latin American um, studies, and I also took extensive coursework in sustainable development. And a lot of, of what I learned, I tried to implement it in my own self-research environmental like science in Central America. And a lot of my research has revolved around um, studying like water resources and um, forestry. Um, but I've taken a specific keen interest, water contamination specifically from the mining industry with a special focus on the Lempa River watershed, which is a very important watershed in Central America. The Lempa River is like one of the longest rivers in Central America, and it provides a lot of the water resources for the for agricultural and um, manufacturing, and it also provides a lot of the drinking water for half of the territory of El Salvador. Um, what's unique about the Lempa River watershed is that it's shared by um, three countries, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. The source of the water is in Guatemala. So it's very um, interesting how um, this transboundary um, watershed kind of has affected like environmental policy in Central America, specifically El Salvador. Um, what's most significant about water resources, specifically in El Salvador, is that in two, March of 2017, El Salvador became the first country in the world to ban metal mining because of concerns over environmental degradation and water resource scarcity. Mm -hmm. um, historically, El Salvador has suffered like a lot of droughts, and because of its high population, there's a really big demand for water resources in the country. Well, you started talking a little bit about the history of water scarcity in El Salvador. Um, maybe if you could tell us how that's looked, maybe specifically if you can in the past 20 years. So yes, um, in the past 20 years, like with the rise of climate change, there's been precipitation patterns that have been consistent in the past have been shifting the rainy season increasingly mm. the days of the rainy season increasingly becoming shorter and drought becoming 
like prolonging mm-hmm. and you can actually see this through satellite imagery like a lot of the territory of El Salvador is within the within this area that's called the Central American Dry Corridor. So you can so there's been some studies there's not a few, there's a few unfortunately because there hasn't been a lot of scientific investigations on climate change done in Central America and some of the some of the studies that do exist are a bit outdated but recently there's there's a there's been a renewed interest in continuing some of these like studies specifically with water resources just because like El Salvador's kind of like the canary in the mine it's the best way I can explain it it's the canary in the mine in regards to climate change and water water scarcity. Just because the country is so tiny mm. and has a high population density, right? For, for for the amount of like surface area. So, are you when you say it, I'm not very familiar with the phrase "canary in the mine." Does that mean like it's kind of a perfect storm from what you're describing? Mm-hmm. I think it's an an important case study. Okay to look into of what the future of water resources and climate change in Central America will look like. Mm. And it paints, in my opinion, a very concerning picture just because a majority of of El Salvador's and other central and other local Central American countries, their main economy is subsistence farming. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's not a surprise that with less rain, with the rainy season becoming more shorter and droughts prolonging and becoming longer, water is, for the high population demand, it's becoming less available. And then we have to take into account that these countries do not have water treatment plants. They have very few, they're outdated. Mm. Some don't even work. You know, literally the rivers uh, of Central America are literally open sewers. Wow. You know, people, yeah. (laughs) People have, people, (laughs) if if you've gone to rural areas, like in Guatemala, like where my Mm. family's from, you know, they live out in the, you know, out in the rural areas, the, the, their septic drains right into their local stream or river, okay? Mm-hmm. And then there's villages downstream in the watershed that literally use that same water for drinking, for irrigate, ir- irrigating their crops. Mm-hmm. And it's not a coincidence that because of that, like, the child... mortality rate like in Guatemala for example is so high because kids under the age of five die from like diarrhea from and it's Mm. because they're drinking water okay this is happening like in El Salvador for example with the Lempo River watershed the situ the contamination is so bad that every year there's massive die-offs of fish in the river no that show up because a lot of it has to do with agricultural like pesticides entering the watershed and also you have high like rates of like nitrogen and phosphorus Mm -hmm. which are they create like algal blooms 
it, this is like really scientific what are stuff, algal but basically, al algal blooms. Okay. So algal blooms, it's like it's a type of microorganism. It's it's algae basically. Okay. And algae create their energy through photosynthesis, but when they have these nutrients, which is nitrogen and phosphorus, it enters the water. Like that's what they eat. That's like their nutrient source, right? Mm -hmm. It gives them energy. And then they photosynthesize and they take out the oxygen from the water. Oh, and okay. fish, for example, need dissolved oxygen in their water in order to breathe. So because of that, there's all of a sudden, like when the level when the when there's a lot of algae in the water, there's mass massive fish die-offs. Okay. Right. And I imagine these fish, I mean, obviously, aside from it being very significant for the ecosystem, do a lot of people use the fish, for example, as a food source? Yes, a lot of people fish as a food source. It's, yes, that is very common, which kind of, which is a big um, health concern, you know? Mm. But then there's also mm. the people that downstream that use the water for for drinking and for cooking you know like like you could boil water to get rid of some bacteria and whatnot but you can't get rid of pesticides that are in the water or heavy mm. heavy metals like from mining for example like you can't get right. rid of that. and over time like over a few decades like you can build up like you could all of a sudden start showing like diseases because like some people like especially mining areas where gold mining they use like a lot of arsenic for example so mm -hmm. that builds up in their body over time and then people break out with like skin disease or get cancer or their hair falls oh, out God. you know that that's actually yeah. there's actually a case of that that happened in Honduras and the via the Syria, I believe, with um with a gold mm -hmm. gold mining company too. So wow. I, think, mm -hmm. I think seeing all of this that also motivated like the Salvadorian people to collectively get together and kind of say like put it and put so, made them see the future of the country, you know? And it kind of motivated a lot of people to to get together and collectively organize to get the government to to ban mining but for that to happen it took it took a lot a lot of time and i'll be honest el salvador had to surpass a lot of obstacles and odds in order to to make this successful and a lot of it couldn't have happened without the cooperation of you know the the government yes but also a lot of people joining together with international organizations getting together educating mm -hmm. people on the on the matter both in the country and abroad um i think what also helped a lot is um the salvadorian people seeing the legacy of mining because this wasn't the first time that el salvador or central america has had to deal with mining mining has been a thing since the right. conquest you know it just yeah. hasn't happened in it just hasn't happened in large enough levels to to become a significant part of the economies of these countries. Mm -hmm. So with what really pushed El Salvador to 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 put in to want to end mining in their tor tor territory was seeing the environmental de degradation of the Sebastian mine located in the Department of La Unión. Um, it was a mine that opened in 1904 and. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> 
like the mining companies at the time that took out gold from this mine did not this was back in the day before like environmental regulation was a thing you know it was just uh these companies would come in take out the gold basically offset all production costs to the environment through pollution so this right. mine like even 30 years after it like closed it was still spewing out acid mine drainage so Jesus. if you don't know what acid mine drainage <laughs> is really tech toxic it's water that's full of really heavy heavy metals that are very bad for human health like the water from from acid mining drainage it's you you it's very expensive to clean and it's also like it's the water is undrinkable you know Mm -hmm. right so when did this metal i guess this ban on metal mining in el salvador when did that happen so the band kind of started in 2006 when President Antonio Saca at the time called for a moratorium on mining projects in El Salvador. So what this did was mm-hmm. this prevented the Ministry of the Environment, also known as Marin, from giving like from giving this Canadian company, um, Pacific Rim, a production license to begin mining operations. And Pacific Rim was really upset because they had spent a few years doing like doing exploration of the area to see how to give to basically all these companies do this there's called like mining licenses are basically divided into two in most countries mm-hmm. this is especially true in central america there's exploration licenses this gives a mining company um, the ability to do geological surveys of of an area where they think that there might be like a big deposit of a mineral right to mine, right and mm-hmm. usually that takes a few years and then afterwards um once they do their research and then they bring in approximate like estimate of how much like for example gold that they'll get from that area if they mm-hmm. if the company feels that it's the the reserve is big enough and profitable enough then usually they will um apply for an exploitation um license mm-hmm. which gives them the ability to extract um the mineral from a designated area <clears throat> So essentially what the moratorium did was it stopped Pacific Rim from getting their production license. Pacific Rim felt that that wasn't fair because they had spent a few million dollars doing exploration of the mine. Mm -hmm. Um, They felt that there was a lot of gold. Like they claimed from their studies that that El Dorado um, mine had basically 1.65 million ounces of gold. Wow. Is that true? Uh, I mean, I'd have to read their like technical reports, but right. But I, I guess this based on um, usually on how mining companies may go about this. Like, is there like a tendency of overplaying that or having obviously maybe more of a profit driven interest or? 
Of course, there's definitely a profit-driven interest, but these are like the the quantity of gold that they found was what I believe they shared with their investors. At least that's what they told their investors. So, mm. yeah, okay. Because I don't think a mining company would go to a lot of effort of suing a country, basically, if if the deposit deposit wasn't big enough you know and it also didn't help right. that the mm-hmm. lo- the the el dorado mine literally rests on this area in central america that's shared be- between like it's called the the gold belt of central america and it encompasses like guatemala el salvador honduras nicaragua and costa rica so th- it's like an area where there's like a lot of gold that can mm. be found Yes, unfortunately. Um, and before, with recent advancements in technology, now it's a lot more easier for these mining companies to come in and extract this this mineral that at one time before, due to, to technology and how remote the region was and lack of infrastructure, they couldn't do. But now... I mean, it's just facilitated so much more. Exactly, because they just have the technology and and money to do it. And then so they started, he said 2006, they put this moratorium and then this Pacific Rim company gets upset at this. And then afterwards, what what happened? So um, in 2009, the President Antonio Saca was running for re-election. Um, and that's when the, he and the Arena Party, which he was running for, they basically publicly um, voiced their opposition for mining in the country. And, and they, and they were like in support with the rest of the Salvadorian population in supporting a a band on mining, which was like a really big deal. Mm. No one expected for this conservative, more right wing party to like basically side with the Salvadoran people. It was, it was a very interesting moment. And that same, a few, like that same year, um, Pacific Rim then files a lawsuit against El Salvador with the International Center for Settlement of Investor Di- Disputes, which is part of the World Bank. They originally mm-hmm. sue for like 200 million, 200, like $250 million. And later, like in subsequent years, they sue they like they add they start claiming that it that it's really three hundred million dollars that they want from El Salvador for alleged lost profits mm. because they literally said that the timing of the right. moratorium with when they finished exploration and began to apply for an exploitation permit coincided with the president mm-hmm. banning mining. So they thought so what they were right. claiming is that under investor laws, under CAFTA, basically, that El Salvador was violating free trade agreements. Uh, so uh, they took El Salvador to the World Bank. Right. Wow. And so what was the, has there been a decision yet? Yeah, so in 2016, yeah. um, Pacific Rim, which was later the its claim for El Dorado Mine, was bought up by Oceanic Gold. Like, mm-hmm. the case was dismissed. No okay. one expected it. Just because it was an international tribunal, and uh-huh. 
a lot of the court proceedings were held behind closed doors. So okay. like mm-hmm. no one no one expected like El Salvador to win. Right. So basically what happened was that the case was dismissed because it was meritless. Apparently oh. El Salvador, to my understanding, I could be wrong on this, pardon me, but mm-hmm. it was because El Salvador signed CAFTA after Pacific Rim was doing exploration. Oh, oh. okay. So, when, yes. When, and When did El uh, Salvador sign CAFTA? Cause I don't know. That's a good question. I should probably look that make- up. Let me Google because I know CAFTA has been in Central America for a very long time. So, because I, I remember seeing uh, a documentary on actually why exactly you're talking about how about Pacific Rim and the mine. Yeah. So, so Salvador, I think it was in August 2004, and I think Pacific Rim bought the rights to do exploration for the El Dorado mine in 2002. Okay. Oh. Interesting. And during the whole time, during the litigation, um, to just try to sidestep, like, international laws and whatnot, like, to my understanding, like, Pacific Rim just decided to sell the claim to Oceanicore and the gold and then it became like a whole deal of like who was responsible for who which also like muddled up some things and probably that's part of the reason why it took nine years for for the case to finally get settled Mm. yeah and as part of restitution like like Oceanic Gold had to pay $8 million to cover part of the $12 million that El Salvador spent on legal fees during the duration of the lawsuit. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. That's yeah a that's, lot. And they didn't even get fully, I mean, it wasn't fully covered because it was only eight out of 12. So, but not only that, did yeah. they, did they were able to at least, um, Because of, you know, what happened. Yeah, they cover eight million. Just said eight million, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did they still didn't give to the people who have affected but because I believe the people around all those mining, you know, section and places where they were doing all that were were the ones who were more affected than, you know, the state, I'll say. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, the mining company, to my understanding, I mean, I think there's been some lawsuits because during the time there were some assassinations of oh no people in some of the local yeah. communities that did oppose the, the mines. I think it was four or five people, you know. Wow. And, like, it was kind of indirectly linked to Oceanic Gold. And then there was also this whole campaign on part of the mining company during, after the, after it started the lawsuit, like, trying to paint metallic mining as green mining. Like, saying how, trying to talk about how um, the mining was environmentally friendly and sustainable, which... Um, if anybody knows anything uh, remotely a bit about mining, mining is one of the most destructive and highly mm-hmm. environmentally degrading activities mm. <laughs> that exist, you know, in today's yeah. 
That's such a false claim to even say that it's environmental friendly. Yeah, they were hoping to 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 sway like public opinion on on being for mining, not against mining. And they always talk about how they're going to create a bunch of jobs and whatnot. But I mean, like, no. I mean, it was an international company who was doing that, most likely. Like, they would not hire locals. Yeah, a lot of them don't. You know, a lot of those jobs, you need to be highly specialized and have, like, degrees, you know? So they actually, mining companies often bring in a lot of outside foreign people into communities to do the work. And they'll give a few jobs to the community, but usually those are more, like, labor-intensive and that and lowly paid, you know? But for the, mm. for the cost of living in those communities, like the payment is high. But the problem is a mine has a lifetime, you know, like they're yeah. not going to be taking out gold or silver or whatever other metal, like indefinitely. There's going to be a moment when the deposit is going to exhaust and then the mining company is just going to pack up and leave. And often they leave communities having to deal with the environmental mm-hmm. issues and problems that they leave behind, you know, mm-hmm. and it's really hard for poor countries for El- like El Salvador to deal with these things because it's a third world. It's a poor third world country where people are literally le- leaving and fleeing because of poverty and violence. And El Salvador mm-hmm. does, doesn't even have the money. It has to rely on outside aid. And people that send money from the U.S. for most of its GD, you know, for most of its spending on social programs. How are they going to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to clean up a contaminated mm. river because from mining? Right. First of all, I don't think you can clean up completely something that is already damaged, you know? Right. Or can you clean up, like, a river from mining completely. No, I I, per, I personally don't think so. You know, even here in the US where we have a lot of regulations with the EPA and whatnot in regards to Superfund sites. I'll be honest, there's some places I've gone out. I I, I studied in in Pennsylvania, you know, uh, for some of my geology field trips. I would go out into coal country, you know, like coal was a right. big thing for the last 150 years in that region and going out there like you could see the acid mine drainage you could see the poverty of these towns you know a lot of people are leaving like a lot of these places are unpopulated and you know maybe 50 100 years ago these these towns out in Pennsylvania in coal country were boom towns you know full of activity and now it's just Everything's completely dead, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's kind of like the legacy of mining and natural resource extraction as a whole. You know, we have a we have a government agency that's funded that goes out and cleans these does remediation work. And we still have problems with water pollution in the United States. Now imagine a country like El Salvador that has a lot less Mm -hmm. resources and money. Like it could spend, it could be like the San Sebastian mine, literally spend more than a hundred years and still a hundred years later be leaking acid mine drainage. Right. 
definitely this is very important information and like i said i think i saw a documentary about it i do not remember the name i remember seeing it in one of my classes and if i remember a name i'll put in the notes because it's exactly what you said and it's very important and what you said about people getting killed it and actually in that documentary shows mm-hmm. about this old lady that they shot like threw a rock to her face and she lost her eye or something like that if i'm not mistaken and it's very important for people to be aware i was you know especially mining that i mean now is banned in el salvador but it's not banned on guatemala honduras nicaragua belize and all those regions and i feel like we should be more aware of an, our environment and what is happening with these international companies that is not only affecting our national resources there because of that reason uh, they privatize land they privatize water mm-hmm. and many of the our communities especially outside of the cities they depend on these resources and now with um global warming and all these um, issues that is going on around the globe is most likely going to affect our communities around those resources more than a person in the in this city. I don't know what you have to say about um, global warming and all these issues that has been. I don't know how to <laughs> continue that. Well, but yeah. <laughs> well, I can say this, like in regards to global warming, what is going to happen and there's some academic journal studies that show like Central America under different climate change scenarios based off of greenhouse emissions, you know, mm-hmm. and we're looking for the Lempa River uh, anywhere between a 12% to 23% reduction in water volume in within the watershed by 2100. Okay. Wow. And I, and I personally think, and this is an academic study that was done maybe like eight almost 10 years ago it's a bit outdated Mm -hmm. and with the fact that it is increasingly becoming certain and apparent that the world will not be able to contain global warming to that one and a half degree centigrade increase it's looking more like Uh it's going to be between two to three degrees centigrade so what's going to happen is central america will probably be getting a lot more drier you know and yeah like i mentioned previously you could see it in the satellite images you know i forgot there was this one website that this organization that deals with like food insecurity they've been doing such a great Mm -hmm. job mapping of collecting satellite imagery showing how much the dry corridor has been expanding mm-hmm. in the last mm-hmm. few years. Right. And it's and it's kind of scary. Sometimes for some years between one year and the next, like the amount of area that becomes more dry compared to the previous year, like drastically is a lot bigger. Which right. is scary. So so now some scientists mm-hmm. are literally using these satellite imageries to to start predicting when there's going to be migrant like caravans forming to mm-hmm. leaving Central America, mm-hmm. and it usually happens a few months after a few months after the harvest season happens because some people like 
it's not like entire crops are completely decimated because a lot of subsistence farmers like they save you know their beans and their mm-hmm. and their corn and stuff. you know you they usually grow enough to last some of the year right until the next harvest but it's to the point where a lot of the crop is failing so their store their food storage supplies are decreasing drastically right. They can't cope with it because one, they don't have the money. It's not like they can go out to the store and just buy corn, you know? And then also you have the U.S. that subsidizes a lot of corn to export around the world. So now you have all these Central American countries getting flooded with cheap U.S. corn. So then it becomes Mm -hmm. even more difficult for subsistence farmers who want to sell their crop Mm -hmm. to market. Like the the prices for domestic corn are a lot higher than the cheap U.S. imported corn. So a lot of people, it's not economically possible. It's becoming economically difficult to even justify, for these farmers to justify farming. Yeah. Because they actually they actually lose money, you know. Yeah, um, definitely. When I was down in Guatemala, like two years ago, almost it, like in I went in August. It was towards the end of the corn season when it was getting harvest. Mm-hmm. There was literally NGOs coming to um, talk to community members in the town where my family is from telling them to go to a meeting so that they can get, you know, food aid. You want to know what the aid was? <laughs> the, they, the, they had two amazing options. One option was to get a 50-pound bag of fertilizer. Oh. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, to get fertilizer for next year so they could grow their crops using fertilizer probably from some ag- agricultural right. corporation. And then the second option was to get a 50-pound bag of corn. No. Let me tell you, 50 pounds of corn, is that going to get a family through a year? Of- no. Definitely not. No. Also, no one just eats corn. I mean, we eat a lot of tortillas. Like right. Also, I'm just, the, the, a really big loss. Obviously, there's a lot of losses here, but I'm just thinking about Central American maize to be replaced by U.S. maize. That's, tra- that's like a cultural tragedy. Yeah, it is a cultural tragedy. That's something that one of yeah. my uncles, who's a farmer, told me too that he's he literally said it's just not possible to compete with the prices you know and that's definitely like a cause for the surge of the migration like it's one of the root causes for the surge of migration at the border you know you talk to right. a lot of people are are subs are subsistent farmers in one way or another many people are indigenous you know like a lot mm-hmm. of those indigenous people like their living is made from farming on the land you know and it's not like Mm -hmm. they sell a lot of what they produce like a lot of what they produce they consume you know so like they're the ones that are kind of showing us they're giving us a glimpse into what the future is looking like and it's increasingly looking depressing yeah Um, yeah 
and I think it's I think it's very hard for a lot of us to just watch what's happening in Central America and stuff. Yeah. So for final thoughts, do you, how can we help? How can we like be more involved in how to be more aware of these issues that are going not only in El Salvador but in the entire Central American region? Um, do you have any suggestion how us not only as people outside of the uh, Central America, but people actually in Central America and everybody can help. Yeah, I think there's a lot of amazing like nonprofit organizations like that are supporting grassroots organizations in, in Central America in the environmental sector, you know, with water resources and, and mining and all that. Like CSPIS, for example, has been very active um also which um is let me see what is nisqua stands for it's in guate right yes that's for yeah i follow them yeah me too best to volunteer with them but they haven't responded (laughs) anyways um So yes, Nisqua is a network in solidarity with the people of Guatemala. And I and I'm pretty sure that from I, I unfortunately am very ignorant in terms of the the other movements for in in Honduras there's Copin, which um mm, if yeah. anybody is aware, like um Berta Caceres, the environmental the indigenous environmental defender that got assassinated. Um, right. A few years ago, was a, a was a part, and they're they're very active too in the country. I follow their Facebook page, mm. so I think um, my way of being involved has been by following a lot of these grassroots organizations and nonprofits on you know social media. Um, often, when there's cases um, brought against environmental defenders, um, they'll po- they'll post like. Pos- petitions asking for signatures you know that's that's an easy way to help you know like adding your signature onto one of those petitions like it shows that it shows to those to the governments of central america and the and the defenders that there's outside people that are watching what is Mm. happening that they are aware of what's happening and that they're not okay with what is happening you know and I think right. that's been very important. I know like Nisqua has and CSPIS has done a phenomenal job in taking advantage of, you know, international networks with people in cent- like, you know, there's a lot of us here in the US from Central America, you know, and a lot of us are some of us do form an active part in these organizations and are aware of what's going on. You know, and I think just creating that awareness and making sure that people are aware of what's going on, you know, I I follow a lot of other local grassroots organizations and oftentimes they'll post when an environmental defender gets attacked, jailed, mm-hmm. or killed. Um, and it's really sad. Like every every few weeks, I often find a post of someone that was killed because yeah. they 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 wanted to make sure that they their that their communities had access to to their natural resources right. you know like water and their forest and but that that would be my best approach right in 
Yeah. I think that another um I think that another important component as you were, you know, talking about these organizations is just also raising awareness. Um, because I feel like it's I, for example, again, didn't really start following much Central American news until this past summer. But I was just surprised hearing about, you know, that, oh, um, just based natural resource activists and defenders being murdered, being targeted in contemporary times. I kind of had assumed this was a thing of the past, um, but it's very much still prevalent. And we see that it tends to be, you know, indigenous communities or just communities that are traditionally ignored. Um, and so I think there's also, you know, we may know because this is what we study. This is what we actively try to look for. But I think for many people, you know, in the diaspora, you're not really going to hear about it if you don't look for it. And so I think that that's an important component, you know, just make like maybe just promoting these organizations. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Like I it hasn't been until it hasn't been for the last five years that I've been aware that any any of this has been going on. And a lot of it has been because like I've been actively looking and searching for a lot of these social like organizations and following them on social media. And that's how I get my news of what's going on. But then it sometimes becomes very difficult, in my opinion, to to discern what's really going on, too, just because I feel... I don't know. I just feel like some sort of disconnection. And I, I think a lot of that has to stem my ignorance of how like politics and economics work in a lot of these mm. countries, you know, in, in, in Central America, mm. because, you know, right. I, I wasn't born or raised there, you know, for me, it's very difficult. And sometimes I try to ask to my family members and stuff and a lot of them aren't aware either. Sometimes I feel like I end up educating them a lot on what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I think it's hard, but I, I hope that's something that's going to change, you know, in the future with like more, a lot of more Central Americans in the, in the diaspora, like taking note and interest in this manner, you know? Right. Well, I think it's good then that we had you for our episode today, um, because I know we, when me and Jocelyn have previously talked before in the past, when you explained this to me, it was, I mean, you, you just opened my eyes to a whole reality that, again, is very much happening in Central America. And I think our listeners today are also learning a lot. So think, I think that you're doing a really good job at taking the lead and doing that. Well, thank you so much. I mean, a lot of the knowledge that I've acquired has been through self-study. Like, I've taken what I've learned in my classes in environmental science and geology and Latin American studies, but I I have never had any um, formal academic exposure to these topics that I'm talking to you about. So the knowledge that I've acquired has been through years of (laughs) sleepless nights going down rabbit rabbit holes, um, literally um, searching the obscured crevices of the internet and academic publications like I feel like I have like an informal library of like studies 
stuff that I feel like I need to reread because, um, you know, there's been some stuff that's been published. Some of it's outdated. There's, you know, with everything that's been going on with climate change and the mic, you know, the migrant situation coming out of Central America um, and the foreign policy of the Trump administration towards Central America, there is, and also with the Central American movement that's been bubbling up through social media for the last, you know, three to four years. Um, I feel like this is all a combination of great things, you know. I'm I'm hoping that in the following years, Central American studies is going to become more prominent at an institutional level. And I mean, with what happened at UCLA, like, I think we're starting to see that happen, you know, um, I, I personally would love to go to grad school to, to study more of this in a formal academic setting. But it, it, the program that I'm looking for does not exist yet. Right. For me, too. I, I completely understand you. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm trying to compile like an informal database of like professors at different universities who like don't publicly say that they've studied Central America, like in the environmental context, but who have done like previous research on it, you know, I mean, some of them are starting to come out of the shadows a bit just because they're like, oh, my past research is relevant and can probably be useful for policymakers that want right. to understand this very understudied region. <laughs> mm -hmm. From what it sounds like, you're like, you have a lot of potential in actually creating that space. And so I think if you do end up going to grad school and going down this path, when we do finally have the departments that we're looking for, you know, like Central American Studies, you can be the one leading it in this field. Oh my gosh. Um, I'd probably die. I would die of um, sheer excitement. <laughs> Sorry. I'm a very passionate person. Um, I would probably die yeah. of sheer excitement from a heart attack and then <laughs> die happy. <laughs> no, I mean, but what you're doing, you know, this self-teaching and everything, um, I am very confident that you're one day going to be able to share that. And I think that's very exciting and a yes. very big step forward for the community. Well, yeah, if there's any professors out there, you know, listening to this or whatever, um, you know, reach out to me. <laughs> we'll share her email, we'll share her social media, yes. her LinkedIn. <laughs> I think that you're going to be a torchbearer in this. You have to let your own way. Like, it sounds like you're, and it sounds like yes. what you've been doing, you've been, have been starting to forge your own path. And again, that's a path that others can take. I hope so. I, I, it's been a lonely path so far and, um, I don't want to be lonely anymore. Um, I think great things come when you network with people and, I think amazing things happen. So if there's any other environmental professionals who are Central American, you know, please, please, please follow, like, let's add each other on LinkedIn, you know? Um, <laughs> I, I definitely love to get some sort of network thing started just because I know we're out there, but we're all like scattered everywhere and we don't know who, who, 
like who the other people are, you know? So mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe I'll start an organization <laughs> solving that yeah. problem. Yes. 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 But I need help. Yes. I need help, ladies. We <laughs> will. We're, we're, we're there for you. We'll support you. We're, we're here for you. Thank Don't you. worry. We're here for you. Thank you. So, so I think that's a good place to end. Thank you, Jocelyn, for coming on the show and sharing your self-discovered wealth of knowledge with us i definitely learned a lot today well thank you for having me this has this is such an amazing opportunity and i'm so happy to to be sharing my small grain of knowledge and opinion on on these issues that um really affect you know our lives indirectly and the lives our families, those that are leaving Central America and coming to right. the U.S. to to basically um, get locked up in concentration camps at the border um, for problems that these people have no fault of. You know, it's not their fault that the greenhouse emissions keep mm-hmm. rising and that climate change is a thing because they're not the ones that put that carbon dioxide into the air. You know, that's the responsibility of major industrialized countries like the U S for example. And, you know, I I think it's very, it's very unfair. And I think this is a case of, you know, environmental Mm. injustice. Um, But um, I really appreciate you ladies um, giving me a space to, to just talk about these issues and kind of share this information with the greater Central American community. Thank you. Thank you. And we actually really, really appreciate it. We appreciate your knowledge. And to all our listeners, everything that Jocelyn said will be listed in our notes for your guys' access. If you want to contact her or anything, please do. This is an issue that involves all of us for our community. So thank you so much. Don't forget to check out our website at centralamericanvoices.com where you can subscribe to our mailing list. Also follow us on Instagram at Centum Voices Podcast and on Twitter at Centum Voices Pod for more updates. And don't forget to come back next week to hear our newest episode. Bye.